Um, I'll, I'll share some closing thoughts about the series during the next meeting so we um, maximize our time here this morning during the first meeting. Um, I'm going to try to use some names that maybe a number of the generations represented here may be familiar with, but many of you are probably familiar with the pop and rock singer Madonna. Many of you are very familiar, not only because she's a well-known singer, but she's a somewhat outspoken and, and uh, uh, about immorality in her lifestyle, and, and it's something that she seems to flaunt to some extent. Knowing the kind of lifestyle that she lives, knowing the kind of uh, morality or lack of morality that she ascribes to or subscribes to, what would you think if you heard that she converted to Christ? Maybe some of you are familiar with Shirley MacLaine and you're familiar that she's involved heavily and has propagated and promoted New Age spiritualism. What would you say if you heard that Shirley MacLaine had embraced the Christian faith? What would you think if Kim Jong-un abandoned his atheism and embraced the Lord Jesus Christ? Nothing. You make a couple good points that I'm going to kind of elaborate on this this morning. Um, it is true that we probably don't see or hear about such high-profile conversions that often. We're going to look at King Manasseh this morning. And when we look at his life, he shows that what is impossible for man, to Larry's point, it is possible for God. Manasseh combines into one person the most flagrantly offensive sins we can possibly imagine. And when you look at his life, certainly he makes those individuals that we've mentioned this morning look like moral people. For example, he set up a moral Baal worship in the temple in Jerusalem. He was into witchcraft and sorcery and spiritualism. He practiced human sacrifice, offering his own in the fire of pagan idols. He slaughtered many innocent people, including many prophets, according to Jewish historians. Second Kings chapter 21 and verse 6 says this. He made his son pass through the fire, practice witchcraft, 
and used divination and dealt with mediums and spiritists. Listen. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Some commentators argue that obviously he not only engaged in idolatry and all manner of wickedness, but he engaged in violence. And many of his victims were no doubt those who opposed him as he descended into, into idolatry, into pagan worship. Certainly those who were loyal to the Lord were the ones who paid those who followed enthusiastically the, 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 the revival that had come under his father, King Hezekiah. This was essentially, he engaged essentially in what we would call today a state-sponsored terror and the elimination of all those who opposed his pagan ways, period. And we find that with the reign of Manasseh, Judah had turned a corner and God's judgment was about to come. We're also told that he shed innocent blood very much in gratification of his own passion and revenge. Certainly he probably murdered some secretly, but he murdered many more under the color of law. And by that we simply mean that he did it with a mere semblance of a, a, a legal right or pretense or appearance of right. This is what I, the king, needs to do in order to maintain our society, order, and law. Probably much of the blood that was, that was shed was the blood of those who clearly stood up against him, those who would not kneel to Baal, the blood of the prophets in a particular manner charged upon Jerusalem is probable and certainly the death of many others. According to Jewish tradition, it is believed that Isaiah died under his reign. And many historians believe that Isaiah was sawed in two from top to bottom. In fact, there's a reference that is in the New Testament that by many is believed to be a reference to the death of Isaiah. In Hebrews chapter 11, I'll read two verses for you. It says, And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets. And then in verse 37 he says, They were stoned, they were sawn in two. Many believe that it's a reference to Isaiah, who was murdered by this king. King Manasseh caused Judah to do more evil, now listen to this, than the nations whom God had destroyed before Israel. Think about that. Entire civilizations were wiped out because of the wickedness 
King Manasseh had taken this nation of Judah to that level of evil. He was the most wicked king in the history of Judah. And you know what's interesting? Listen. He was converted. That's certainly good news for those of us who have loved ones who have pursued sin with a vengeance. Nobody, nobody is beyond the hope of God's grace. And Manessa shows that to us. It's certainly good news as we pray for the conversion, for example, of wicked leaders in our nation. Who, by the way, are doing things that are no different than the way he did in terms of color of law. You know what I'm saying? Where they are now dictating how society is to behave or what society is to believe for the greater good is what is argued. God can certainly do it. It is good news for anyone hearing this message who has committed such gross sins that they are convinced that there is no way God can possibly forgive them. Even if you were raised in a godly family and you turned away, so was Manasseh, and yet he found God's mercy when he repented, so can you. So our text shows us that because God is merciful, there is hope, listen, for the worst of sinners if they repent. If anyone could be beyond hope, it would be certainly this wicked king who had taken the nation to a level of wickedness greater than the nations that were before Israel. He came to the throne, just to give you a little bit of background, he came to the throne at the age of 12. Many Bible scholars believe that he shared a 10-year co-regency with his godly father, King Hezekiah. So that means that he would have been 22 when his father died. But in spite of his father's godly example, Manasseh quickly turned the kingdom from a spiritual high to a spiritual low. We're going to spend most of our time in 2 Chronicles chapter 33 today. So if you turn there. On occasion, I may ask you to just hold your place there as we look at another passage of Scripture, but look at chapter 33, 2 Chronicles chapter 33 and verse 9. Thus Manasseh misled Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil. Listen. Not to do as much or just to do evil, but to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. 
Imagine the level of wickedness that existed at the time he was king. You had seen incredible revivals taking place under his father. You go from that extreme to this extreme in a manner of just a few years. Many would argue that Manasseh's sin was usually bad for several reasons. And we're only going to see one of them this morning, and then we'll look at the rest when we come back at 11 o'clock. One of the reasons why many argue that his sin was unusually bad was because Manasseh rebelled against light. What do I mean by that? Listen, it was not as if he had uh, never heard about God. It was not as if he had no models of godliness. He had been co-regent with his father, who many argue was the most godly king after David in Judah. So it's not like he didn't know who God was. It's not like he didn't know about the things God had done. It's not like he didn't have a witness or a testimony or a model of godliness certainly did in his own father now although Hezekiah had fallen into some pride during his later years he humbled himself and he walked with God so it is inconceivable that the godly Hezekiah had not spent time telling his son and heir of the throne about God and the great things that God had accomplished during his reign. Besides, Hezekiah also had individuals like the prophet Isaiah. And many more godly men in the kingdom. The priests and the Levites were teaching people the law of God. Remember, we're coming off a time of revival and renewal in the, in the nation of Judah. Manasseh was born into, spiritual, into a spiritual oasis of sorts. A time of renewal, a time of revival, but he walked away from it. But not only did he walk away with it, he rebelled. And he rejected the godly witness and testimony. And he set aside the light of God's word. Often the most flagrant sinners are those who reject a godly upbringing. Let me give you an example. And typically these, when they turn, they turn from the things of God that seem to be driven to rid themselves completely of the faith they have rejected. Not long ago, a very well-known American businessman passed away by the name of Hugh Hefner. Some of you may be familiar with Hugh Hefner. He was the founder of the uh, prestigious magazine called Playboy. By his own admission, Hefner grew up, and I quote, in a conservative Midwestern Methodist family. As I understand, his father was a minister who ironically ended up employed by Playboy later on. 
His views on religion, and let me quote to you, it's ridiculous. No one should claim to know the answers to these cosmic questions, says Hefner. He said, it's perfectly clear to me that religion is a myth. It's something we have invented to explain the inexplicable. What does it all mean, if it has any meaning at all? But how can it all exist if it doesn't have some kind of meaning? I think anyone who suggests that they have the answers is motivated by the need to invent answers because we have no such answers. And then he was asked, but what about the religion's utility in instilling morals into society? This is what he said. An afterlife would be a really good deal. Yeah. I would vote in favor of that. But in the meantime, I urge one and all to live this life as if there is no reward in the afterlife. And look at this statement. I just love this. And to do it in a moral way that leaves this world a little better place than you found it. What? Now let me ask you something. If I'm correct, he died in September of this year. What do you think he knows today that he argued could not be known while he was here? Hmm? What do you think he wishes now he had done differently in the only time we're given to get this right? Now Manasseh's father was no phony. Hezekiah was a true man of God. Now you wonder why his son so turned out to be the way he did. I can't give you an answer to that question. The text doesn't tell us why. But we need to remember that while parents have a great responsibility to train their children in the ways of God, ultimately each person has to answer to God for him or herself. You may be growing up in a Christian home, Your parents may teach and model the things of God. But there comes a point, folks, youngsters, when you, listen to me, when you must yield to Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. It was true for Manasseh and it's true for us. Your parents' faith will not get you into heaven. We also need to realize that there's no such thing as an innocent child. We all love kids. They're sweet and cute. Well, sometimes. But my theology says that every child, listen to me, every child, even one born to Christian parents, 
and raised in a Christian home has a sinful nature capable of doing the awful things that King Manasseh did. You hear me? Every child raised in a Christian home is as much in need of a definite conversion as Manasseh needed. And as, Christians parent, as, as Christian parents, we need to pray, work, and look, listen to me, look for signs of conversion in our children. Let me kind of be clear about this as, as, as we kind of finish here. It is fine when children pray to ask Jesus to come into their heart. But that in and of itself does not necessarily mean, hear me, that they were genuinely converted. Is there evidence of repentance from sin? Is there a hunger for the things of God? Is there a submission to God's word? Even those who are not outwardly religious need to experience God's grace through the cross of Christ. There needs to be evidence of regeneration. We must not simply assume that because something was said to have been done, it means it actually happened. And youngsters need to make sure that you understand that at some point you will be responsible for yourself as it relates to what you've done with this man, Christ Jesus. Take you, Hefner, a man who had been apparently reared in a Christian home who had probably gone to church and Sunday school. For all we know, he may have made a profession of faith. Was it genuine? Was his life evidence of that conversion? He lived his life as he believed he could. The cost to him forever. Forever. You can't get this one wrong. Let's close. Father, we thank you for allowing us to engage in this study in Chronicles where we've been able to evaluate and look at the lives of some of these kings. We've seen the good and the bad and We've been able to glean from these texts of Scripture some principles that could be applied to our age and to our own lives. As we consider this last king in this series, may you open our eyes and ears that we may see what you're attempting to share with us, to glean from this historical individual who lived in time and space. We thank you for the fact that your grace is indeed amazing. For you have reached out. You have sought. You have come to seek and to save. 
And we thank you for that. As we come to the 11 o'clock meeting, Lord, may we be receptive and ready to hear from you. We give you praise and glory in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.